welcome to the Spaceport America podcast with me, Alice Carruth, the New Mexico Spaceport Authority Public Relations Coordinator. And for our second episode of our podcast series, we are discussing Pluto. Did you know that Pluto is still considered a planet in New Mexico? which means that it's still considered a planet at Spaceport America. So I wanted to do an episode on why. And joining me today, I have Dr. Chris Churchill, who is a professor of astronomy at New, uh, New Mexico uh, State University. Try that again, NMSU. <laughs> so welcome, Chris. Thank you, Alice. Um, first of all, I wanted to start by reading the legislation that says that Pluto is still a planet. So. A Joint House Memorial 54 at the 48th Legislature, uh, the first session in 2017, had a joint memorial declaring Pluto a planet and declaring March the 13th, 2007, Pluto Planet Day at the Legislature. For those who don't know why Pluto is so well loved in New Mexico, Chris, can you explain to us the man behind Pluto and why we recognize it still as a planet in New Mexico? I'd be happy to. So... Pluto was discovered by Clyde Tombaugh in the 1930s while he was working at Lowell Observatory up in Arizona. Soon after, Clyde came down to New Mexico and, and founded the Department of Astronomy here at New Mexico State University. And he's actually responsible for the building of the telescope on top of a mountain, which was a, actually a world-class telescope for studying planets. So there's a rich history of developing planetary astronomy in New Mexico. And I think that's so super exciting. Sorry to jump in there, Chris, but one of the things that I'm constantly telling people is how much we are involved in space in New Mexico. And that includes astronomy as well as the development of commercial space entities and NASA space entities and everything going on at WISMA. So I think this is a really exciting subject to really cover. Can you talk a little bit more about what it is that you guys worked on at NMSU? Well, our department is actually quite diverse now from the days of Clyde Tombaugh and Bradley Smith, who really built the uh, department up. But today we're very diverse. We study a lot of solar physics and space weather. We have a very healthy planetary program as well because we want to maintain that history here. Um, We study both the solar system and we have a new professor now who is studying exoplanets and, you know, looking for Earth-like planets around other stars. That's a whole other explosive field that is developed in planetary sciences. And then we have a group of people that study the uh, galaxy, the Milky Way, and then um, all the evolution of galaxies throughout cosmic time. And uh, we have both observers who go to the telescopes and collect light uh, to study these things, and we have theorists who spend a lot of time with their computers and trying to understand the data we collect with the telescopes. That sounds really interesting. Going back to Clyde Tomabau and his work here in, in New Mexico, he actually started, I believe, at White Sands Missile Range before he joined NMSU. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe that is correct. He worked out there for a while, um, and then he had the idea that he really wanted to have a Ph.D. program uh, in New Mexico. So my understanding is that when Clyde discovered Pluto back in February 1930, he didn't have a Ph.D. in astronomy at the time. Is that right? You know, um, it's a pretty interesting story with with Clyde. He he was uh, what people would call a farm boy, 
who actually was very interested in astronomy, built his own telescopes, and, and then, yes, you're right, he was not a trained professional astronomer, and he caught the attention of Percival Lowell, who was really trying to uh, discover this next planet, because there were indications there was another planet beyond uh, Neptune. So, right, he started out that way, and then, of course, he was able to get a, a doctorate later. That's really exciting. And I love the fact that he's a bit of a farm boy, rags to riches style story of how he became this world renowned astronomer. Um, I, from my understanding, Pluto was obviously discovered and, and was declared a planet in 1930. But in 2006, the International Astronomical Union reclassified it as a dwarf planet, which is why it was a part of the controversy of why it became a planet still recognized in New Mexico. Can you explain a little bit about why it was? demoted as such, so, so we no longer have the ninth planet of Pluto? I would be happy to do that. But I'd also like you to, to later uh, ask me another question after we're done with this one, which would relate to the history of the definition of planets Yes, um, that go, goes a little bit further back than the 1930 to 2006 arc. Okay. But, but the bottom line was that... Um, a whole new series of small planets were being discovered at a rapid pace out beside, outside the orbit of Neptune. And this became sort of a, another quasi-asteroid belt, if you will, which we, we know there's an asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. But this is another region outside of Neptune's orbit, which is another asteroid belt called the Kuiper Belt. And it was discovered that there are lots of small planetoids, if you will, about the size of Pluto, um, and they were finding them fairly rapidly. And it became a problem as to do whether to continue to define these new bodies as planets or not. And then, of course, the problem was is that Pluto was just like these other bodies. And so there was this problem about whether we continue to add planets after planets after planets to the solar system. So they got together and basically defined a new definition of planet, which kind of premeditatedly was designed to demote Pluto from its planethood. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what defines a planet in that sense? Because my understanding is Pluto is very small. It's what, a sixth of the mass of Earth's moon. Is that part of the reasoning that they thought it was more of a dwarf planet rather than a planet that we would recognize? Well, that's a great question, Alice. So um, in the end, the, the, the definition of planet was never really were, ever codified. It's never really well-defined in any uh, objective sense, like most definitions are about types of galaxies or types of stars. Planets didn't enjoy that kind of definition. So that was one of the reasons for calling the International Astronomical Union uh, body together to codify the definition of planet, in addition to this other quandary and problem I was telling you about with the Kuiper Belt objects. Mm -hmm. In the end, they came up with three definitions in order to be a planet. And the first was you have to be orbiting around the sun, so Pluto's still a planet for that definition. Number two was you have to have enough mass that you kind of end up 
being a round ball, a round body, instead of some kind of potato lump-shaped thing. Pluto still meets that classification, so good so far. But then the last definition was that you have to be able to clear out the neighborhood of your orbit from smaller bodies. Hmm. And this is where Pluto fails. You know, if you go to the orbit of Earth or you go to the orbit of Mars, there's really no other planets or small bodies in those orbits. They've been cleared out through the gravitational influence of Earth and Mars. And Jupiter, the same, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. But you go out to Pluto and you find that that area of the uh, solar system is like another asteroid belt, as I was saying. And so Pluto has not had enough influence to really claim its own territory in the solar system. And so that's where it got demoted. Now, that makes a lot more sense, because uh, I've obviously always known that Pluto had five moons. Um, that was pretty much taught to me at elementary school level, and it was, a, it was still a planet when I was at elementary school, not to give away too much of my age. Um, and certainly way past when I graduated, when it was demoted to dwarf status. And I, I remember reading about how it periodically was closer to the sun than Neptune, so I didn't quite understand how it was demoted to this dwarf planet status, but that certainly makes a far more sense to me. Uh, but going right. back to Clyde Tombaugh, um, he obviously worked at NMSU until 1973, if I'm right, when he retired. But my understanding, he was still very much connected to the astronomy department beyond that. Can you talk a little bit more about what he was like as a character and why we hold him with such high esteem here in New Mexico? Mm. Well, I can answer to that indirectly because I have to say uh, I've never had the pleasure or the privilege of meeting Klein Tabaugh personally. He was well retired by the time I came here in 2003. Mm -hmm. But I can say that he is alive and well in the hallways of our department. For one, um, he is well loved because of his incredibly good-natured personality. And the other thing you hear about Clyde is how highly intelligent he was and how much he could embrace people and help them feel smart and, and lead them. So he was a, a great leader, a very intelligent man, a very kind and caring man. And people really gravitated to him and, you know, enjoyed his, his charisma as well as a human, as well as his esteem as a scientist. He said after he left the I was just going to say quickly, after he left the department, they they formed something called the Tombaugh Scholars um, Endowment. And so we still honor Clyde by having a postdoctoral researcher uh, come here, and as a named fellow, they're called the Clyde Tombaugh Fellow or Scholar, and they uh, publish papers and, and whatnot. And, and bring um, more visibility to, to Clyde's influence in New Mexico and to uh, Las Cruces and MSU. That's incredible. I'm really glad to hear that. My children actually go to Tombow Elementary School. So Tombow is very much a well-known name in our household, and we're very proud of his legacy here in New Mexico, and particularly in southern New Mexico in Las Cruces. In fact, I regularly drive past the stained glass window at the Tombow Art Gallery as well. So, I mean, it's all these reasons of why we recognize Pluto as a planet is the legacy of his, this one man's great influence to the space industry here. 
could you talk a little bit about what you guys are doing out at the Apache Point Observatory? Because that's part of the legislation that that recognises Pluto as a planet. Is It talks about Apache Point Observatory that's operated by NMSU and houses the Astrophysicals Research um, Telescope, which is, I believe, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey Telescope. Could you talk a little bit about what it is that that does? Yeah, I'd be happy to. There's two large telescopes up at Apache Point Observatory. One is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey Telescope that you have mentioned. And I will just tell you, tell you in short that that telescope has absolutely revolutionized our understanding of the universe. It has mapped out in three dimensions where all of the galaxies are out to a very, very large distance and has been involved in, in taking the spectra of many, many, many stars and, and galaxies and discovering many quasars, which are basically galaxies with huge black holes in them. The other telescope is the three-and-a-half-meter telescope, we lovingly call it, and it is involved with many amazing projects. Um, one that is very interesting is that they, they shoot a laser at the moon about once a week to measure the distance to the moon very accurately within centimeters, and they um, also are able to measure the speed or velocity of the moon. And the moon is slowly moving away from us, so... Uh, they're testing a lot of Einstein's theories about space and time. So that is a very high-profile uh, uh, scientific experiment. But then there are many universities like Princeton, uh, University of Colorado, University of Washington, that are all members of the Apache Point Observatory, and we share nights on the telescope. And we do everything from searching to, for planets to measuring the spectra of stars and, and looking at their distribution in the galaxy to measuring what's going on with galaxies. I mean, absolutely everything goes on up there. Which is just incredible. And having this kind of research here and available to us in New Mexico really does aid the aerospace industry in this area because, like I've mentioned before, Clyde Tombaugh worked at White Sands Missile Range and actually developed their a telescope a measuring facilities that they used up until the 1990s. So what you're doing is it has a definite knock-on effect to the growing aerospace industry here in New Mexico, and we're really excited by everything that you are doing. And I did want to mention again with Clyde that he was part of the uh, New Shepard. I was trying to figure, remember the name of it. The, the New Horizons, sorry, launch that did a flyby of Pluto in July 2015. Um, they actually right. said part of his ashes on that, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, I heard he actually got to fly by Pluto. How exciting uh, is that? Spectacular. I mean, you know, having <laughs> that kind of person that uh, that has that influence in the astronomy world, but also in the, you know, the aerospace industry is a really great accolade to what kind of person he must have been. Because my understanding is that people actually called him up and asked if they were allowed to explore his planet in advance of that launch, which is really quite an exciting thing to talk about. Um, That's a great honor. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, Clyde Tombaugh was actually quite well known for saying is that he reported seeing UFOs in Las Cruces back in the 1940s and 50s. And I know that's generally seen as and frowned upon in the... um, in your industry, but do you think that there is an opportunity out there for us to ever find life beyond our solar system? 
I absolutely uh, want to answer that question with an enthusiastic yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this is a very, very interesting topic, one that you could do an, another entire podcast on. Mm-hmm. But in short, um, you know, you're either a pessimist or an optimist about this question. And the optimists just look at the, the size of the universe, that there are more stars in it than there are grains of sand on the beach of all of Earth, and that we now know, we just learned in the last 20 years, that almost every star has a planetary system around it. We are finding Earth-like planets like hotcakes, and we will in the next decade. And when the, John, I'm sorry, when the James Webb Space Telescope flies, we will be able to measure what we call biomarkers in the atmospheres of these planets. And biomarkers are basically the signatures that life would impinge upon a planetary atmosphere. And so I think in my lifetime, I expect that we will find biomarkers some, on some other Earth-like planet in our galaxy. I'm glad that you and I agree with that. I think sometimes it's, it's, it almost seems silly that people would think that we are the only life forms in that entire universe it seems almost naive to ever think that we could ever be like that chris i would love if you could talk a little bit about our human innate need to travel in space because you and i have discussed this before in fact you gave a fantastic presentation at the space festival in 2019 that enthralled me about how we humans feel the need to travel and that that it's inevitable that we will go to the stars. Could you talk a little bit about the history of, of human uh, traveling and, and our need to, to look up? Uh, yeah, it's a topic that I'm very passionate about. So in the bottom line, it could be that it's a, it's a survival trait of, of life itself, all life, that it will expand into any ecological niche that is available. It's a great strategy for fighting off extinction because it allows you to diversify. It allows you to um, be in various different environments so that you can't just die off in one environment. Okay, so if you take that to the next extent of becoming a space-faring civilization or, or, or species, by getting off of the planet, we now will put ourselves First of all, we have this innate need to fill these available spaces. And by doing so, then we will evolve and diversify. And therefore, our species has a much greater chance of surviving through millennia or even millions of years, dare I say billions of years, if you're very optimistic, because we would diversify tremendously. And I've kind of gotten a little bit out there with that idea, but obviously over millions of years, if we went out into space and some went up to the Alpha Centauri system or other ones went out to where Bernard Star is, they would evolve completely differently in the same way that the finches of the Galapagos Islands evolved differently, but yet we're still cut from the same common ancestor. And so this is, I believe, something deeply inherent in life for its hedging against extinction. I agree entirely. And I think it's something that we, 
we constantly are looking forward and looking upwards. I'm, I don't know about anybody else around here, but I'm always looking up at the stars and getting lost in them. And I find that the people that I surround around me are also in a similar vein. And we're very lucky here in New Mexico. We have some incredible dark skies that we can see. Is there anywhere in the state that you would recommend as being a place to go and look at the night sky? And what kind of things can we see really out there? I missed a, miss a key word in what you said. Could you ask the question again, please? Sure. Where is the kind of best place to go in New Mexico to enjoy the, a dark sky? And what sort of things can we see with both our naked eye or with a telescope? Oh, okay, great question. So I'm going to tell you that one of the most amazing places that I've ever seen the sky is here in New Mexico. And it's actually up in the Sacramento Mountains in the area around the Apache Point Observatory. There's something magical about that altitude. It's around 9,000 feet. You're high enough that you really get that beautiful sky and clarity, but you're not so high that you're oxygen deprived. And you, it turns out that if you get even higher, the oxygen deprivation will make it so that you don't see as well uh, at, at night. So it's a beautiful altitude. and if you go up there, the thing that really stands out to you is the Milky Way galaxy. You can just see the beautiful band of the stars of the disk of our galaxy lined up along the sky. And what's also amazing is that you can see the patches where dark clouds of gas and dust are blocking out some of the stars. And so you see these beautiful silhouettes of dark clouds behind the stars. And it's, it's, it's really amazing to see that structure. And all you really need is a good pair of binoculars and you can really resolve out those stars. And I mean, it's just countless number of stars that you can see. When it's not COVID and we're restricted to not being able to go anywhere, are there opportunities to go out to the place like Apache Point and be able to observe the sky? as a member of the public? Well, honestly, it is private property in that sense that, you know, the public is not supposed to go up there um, during the day or during the night. Uh, it is a restricted area. But, you know, there's a lot of open fields along the road, the main road that goes uh, out to the observatory that you can go in and, um, you know, set up a little camp in if you want your telescope and whatnot. So there are open patches up in that area of the mountains that, that will work fine. But um, every now and again, we do have an open house where we bring people uh, in the public, and we want to do that more often. So I would say to anybody listening that um, you can pay attention to the New Mexico State Astronomy's webpage or Facebook page in particular, and you can learn about the events that we're doing. And... Um, one of them, like I said, is we like to take people up to the Apache Point Observatory now and again. In fact, we have another program that we're just starting where we're having people take virtual tours through the uh, telescope that Clyde Tompaugh built on a mountain, what we call the Tortugas Mountain Telescope or Observatory. I know you know it well, Alice. I do. It's one of my favorite spots to go to <laughs> in New Mexico, uh, just for Full transparency, I actually went to uh, NMSU and asked them to 
to do something with the observatory because outside it was in a bit of a rough state from people that had gone and graffitied it and they did a fantastic job at um, renovating it and, and I was actually watched the Conjuncture live virtual um, tour so it was very exciting to see and I wanted to say a big thank you to you and to John and your team for putting that on it was very exciting to be able to watch that through Clyde's te telescope yeah that was great it was yeah Nancy and John and Zach from the department um, and I understand I can't remember the exact date but I think there's another one that's coming up in just the next few days here and uh, I would say watch the watch the astronomy Facebook page it will be announced it will be live streamed on Facebook, it uh, might be live streamed on YouTube. And then eventually we want to, you know, in the post-COVID days, uh, start bringing people up there as well. I think that's really exciting. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this, about how you can build careers using astronomy. You don't necessarily have to work in the research field like yourself or in teaching, but there's a definite crossover into aerospace. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be talking to some of your students about the opportunities in aerospace here in southern New Mexico in the coming weeks. And I'm constantly telling people to think about it. We do have to have a very basic understanding of the night sky. We have to have a very basic understanding of astronomy um, to be able to work in aerospace. But I, to, to really learn at the level that you guys do and what you teach is very exciting. And I'm, I'm pleased that you guys are here in southern New Mexico. Do you want to talk a little bit about what courses you have available at NMSU if case people are interested in possibly pursuing astronomy? Well, we have a series of undergraduate courses um, starting at the 100 level, which is the introduction to astronomy. And that covers everything from, you know, the history of astronomy to the planetary uh, system to stars all the way to the galaxy and then out to what we call cosmology, the study of the universe itself. But we also have um, a class called The Planets, which is, you know, just about our solar system. And then, of course, the new age of studying all these exoplanets around, these planets around other stars. Then we have um, a, a very interesting series called The Viewing the Wider World, which is more broad and less technical. And we have one called Life in the Universe. So you can learn all about what's called astrobiology, the, the marriage of astronomy and biology. And then we have one called Great Ideas in Astronomy and Science, where we talk about some of the revolutionary changes in our understanding with time and science and astronomy. And we have one that um, is called Into the Final Frontier, which is just about the aerospace aspect, basically, of the human adventure and the technology breakthroughs that are required and the impact on society that space has and will have in our future. That's a, the great big unknown, and hopefully Spaceport America will definitely be part of that narrative going forward. We're very excited. I don't know if you saw, but we've just announced that Virgin Galactic will be hosting uh, another test flight at Spaceport America, and hopefully we'll be going to space, and New Mexico will be the third state to host human space flight in the coming weeks. So I'm really pleased uh, I, that you're, sh you're sharing that with your students. I'm absolutely sharing that with my students. In fact, I should let your listeners know I've, Alice is actually going to uh, join the class, and she's going to be answering questions for the students and making some presentations about 
some of the fantastic aerospace breakthroughs and, and companies and the industry growth that's happening here in New Mexico because I'm hoping to, between Alice and myself, we can ignite some young minds to really understand that there's a tremendous future in, in all aspects of the aerospace industry, not just become a rocket scientist or an engineer, but you know, to get out there and maybe be a science writer or be involved in STEM education, uh, promotion, any, there's, I, I wish my mind was creative enough to think of all the <laughs> opportunities and things that can be done. Those are the, only the few things that, that came to my mind right now. That's one of the, my biggest things for my job is to tell people that the aerospace industry is far more beyond the, the rocket scientists and engineers now. We, we have everything from a full-time barista working out at Spaceport America, uh, welders, security, firefighters that all work in the aerospace industry and their jobs are just as important as the rocket scientists and engineers. So, Dr. Chris right. Churchill, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode. I hope you've all really enjoyed listening a little bit more about why Pluto is a planet in New Mexico and the great opportunities there are to look at the night sky down here in southern New Mexico particularly. And if you would like to learn more about NMSU Astronomy, uh, go to their website and go and look up their Facebook page. They do some incredible events that are including in the public. They're free and open to all. So thank you very much for joining us today. It was always a pleasure, Alice. Thank you very much for the privilege of joining you. Ta-da! Perfect. We're done. That wasn't too painful, Fantastic. I hope. <laughs> I'd say that went pretty well. Awesome. I will I have think, it. I think so. <laughs> we will have it all edited up and ready to share in the next week or so, Chris. So it will be on Spotify and on Apple Podcast. That's great. Well, I hope I didn't say anything too cringeworthy. Not at all. You were perfect. <laughs> One thing I wanted to share with you real quickly was that I learned while I was doing a little bit of research today um, that, do you know that Earth wasn't always considered a planet? Really? Yeah. That, it's like it's obvious to me now that someone told it to me, but, you know, planets were called wanderers, and so, and they thought the Earth was at the center of the universe, and so the Earth wasn't a planet. The planets were these wandering stars. And then when Copernicus put us out as an orbiting uh, planet, I guess he turned us in Earth into a planet. And so it, it wasn't until the 1500s that Earth became a planet. That's so incredible. The definition changes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I'm always saying is that we, we know so little about the universe. We know a lot. But it's so vast, how could we ever know everything? We, we're constantly learning, and I constantly tell students, yeah, there is so much opportunity for you to learn more and to make that impact onto the universe so that you will be a Clyde Tomabau that discovered a new system or a, a comet. And I do love the fact that he named all of those asteroids after family members over the years. I think that's such a wonderful yeah. story. And, and I think it's incredible to, to see that New Mexico as a state, even though he wasn't born here, even though he didn't spend the first part of his life here, that we recognize him as one of our own. And that really says a lot about our state. I love that. Yeah, I love that, too. That's absolutely true. The Spaceport America podcast, proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.